here. Two visible symbols. One on, one on is the one that comes from the air, the wind, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. Life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. Then the second one is tongue. I'm tongue to give you power to witness. See, that's an assurance to us. I witness for Jesus Christ. I can't give anybody life, but God can. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He gives life to that man that to whom I witness, and he gives me the power, the fire of tongues, gives me the power, use me to witness effectively for Christ. Two sensible phenomena. Then second, we have the inner experience. Look at verse 4, the first part of verse 4. The inner experience. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What happened on the day of Pentecost? Two things. Two things. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 5. Verse 4. Acts 1, verse 4 and 5. Being assembled together with them, commanded they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith you have heard of me. Now, what is the promise of the Father? Verse 5. For John truly be was truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what's one thing that happened on the day of Pentecost? Come on now, verse 5, what's one thing that happened there? They were all baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now look at Acts chapter 2, verse 4. What was the second thing that happened on the day of Pentecost? All filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are two distinct ministries. Now on that day, they happened at the same time. They were all baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, and the church was formed. Secondly, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me take a minute or two and look at those two things. First of all, they were all baptized by the Holy Spirit in the body. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Very familiar verse. One, look at two passages. We might as well go ahead and look at it. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. First Corinthians 12, verse 12. First Corinthians 12, 12. For as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. He has a body. So by one, and now how do you get into that body? How do you get into that body? Well, by one walking forward to the altar, were we all in the body? Is that what it says? Now, how did we get into the body of Christ? For by one spirit were we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Greeks, whether we be slaves or freemen, and we've all been made to participate in the blessings of one spirit. The church is the body of Christ, composed of all true believers in Christ, whatever may be the denominational stand. The church is composed of all true believers in Christ. How do I get into the body of Christ? By the baptism of the Holy Spirit. God has a family. How do I get into the family of God? By regeneration. Abraham was regenerated. John the Baptist was regenerated in the family of God. Now, are you all listening? 
Abraham was regenerated. He was not baptized by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. Abraham was saved. He's in heaven. He was regenerated. He was born into the family of God. When did Jesus preach the subject of the new birth and tell a man that he must be born again and that he could right then be born again? Why did he preach that? Before the cross or after the cross? Before it. So men were regenerated and brought into the family of God before the cross. Men were regenerated. They were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates today, baptizes, indwells, and seals. Old Testament believers are regenerated, born again by the Holy Spirit, brought into the family of God. Old Testament believers were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Though Holy Spirit could leave them. So David says, take not away thy Holy Spirit, Psalm 51, which no Christian can pray today. He's come to dwell in us forever, permanently. Holy Spirit could seal, make a man secure. But the one ministry of the Holy Spirit that is unique to this age is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Not an experience for which I see. Not a second work of grace. It's not something that I look for after I get saved. The baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place in the hour of my conversion, the hour that I trusted Jesus instantaneously. The Holy Spirit performed a great divine surgical operation, spiritual surgical operation. He cut me out of the old Adam, and he joined me to the last Adam, Jesus. And that spiritual surgical operation is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I grew up in Southern California. They'd take a, a, you know, a branch from an orange tree right down where it came into the trunk, cut it out, make an incision in the grapefruit tree, and place that branch into the grapefruit tree and bind it up, hoping that eventually the sap from that grapefruit trunk would come into the branch. It had been taken out of one tree, grafted into another tree. That, my friend, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm taken out of the old Adam and the family of Adam, and I was born into that family, and I was born united to Adam when I was born. For an Adam, all died. I was a member of the Adamic race, lost, lost, due. The hour of my conversion, when the Holy Spirit worked in my heart and soul, and I trusted Christ as Savior, God did many things for me. I didn't learn about him until 20 or 30 years later. But he did many things. One of them was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He performed a surgical operation, spiritual surgical operation. He cut me out of the old Adam, and he grafted me into Jesus Christ instantaneously. And that instantaneous grafting into Christ is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that puts me into Christ and into the body of Christ. I'm joined to Christ. I'm joined to the body of Christ. I'm a member of the body, the church of Christ, member of the body of Christ forever. How did I get into the body of Christ? By the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that, my friend, gives me my position in Christ. When I was saved, four things, regeneration, that gave me a new life, the new birth. Baptism, that gave me a new position in Christ. Indwelling, 
That gave me a new permanent residence, the Holy Spirit. Sealing, that gave me a new security. I'm sealed until the day of redemption. Baptism gave me a new position in Christ. So what does the Bible say? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be, yeah, not in the Mid-South Bible College, not in the First Presbyterian, the First Baptist Church, although I ought to be a member of a local church. Not there, but where? In Christ. Therefore, if man, any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Romans 8, 1. There's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. How did you get in Christ? Come on now, or turn the clock back. How did you get in Christ? By, on your part, trusting Christ to save you. On God's part, by the baptism of the Holy... Now, don't be scared to say it. See? How did you get into Christ and into the body of Christ? By the... Yeah, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Instantaneously, at conversion, I never lose it. Never take it out. Now, as I grow, develop as a Christian, the baptism of the Holy Spirit gives me my position in Christ. Now, as I begin to grow as a Christian, I begin to see, as I read the Bible and pray, that there's some parts of my life that are not yielded to God. So I give myself to the Lord. Romans 12, 1, I present my body to the Lord. And then I read the Bible, and I see that here's a sin. Here's some disobedience. Here's something that's wrong in my life. And I yield to God at that point, and the Holy Spirit takes over and controls my life. And that control of my life by the Holy Spirit is called the filling with the Spirit. What is the filling with the Spirit? It's simply the control of my life by the Holy Spirit. I'm never commanded to be baptized, never. I am commanded to be filled with the Spirit. I can be baptized only once. No repetition. Once in the hour of conversion. But I can be filled many times with the Spirit. The disciples were filled in Acts 2.4. They were filled again in Acts 4.8. And they were filled again in Acts 4.31. Three of them. One baptism, as the old note in the old Schofield Bible said. One baptism, many fillings. That's correct. And as I move along my Christian life, as I read the Word of God, I turn over here and let's say to Proverbs and I discover something and I say listen I'm doing something that's contrary to that I need to make an adjustment in my life I need to yield to God my life right there that's wrong now I'm facing the test if I say to God no no I'm not going to do that I'm not going to do it then I lose the filling of the Holy Spirit that is the Holy Spirit lose his control on me see and as I yield to that then the Holy Spirit continues his control in my life. And that filling with the Spirit is a growing thing, growing all through the rest of my life. Man filled with liquor means he's controlled by liquor. Man filled with hate means he's controlled by hate. Man filled with love means he's controlled by love. Man that's filled with the Holy Spirit means that he's controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, on the day of Pentecost, both of those happened. On the day of Pentecost, day of Pentecost, Peter, who was already saved, 
and John, who was already saved, and the other men who were already saved, unlike us today, already saved, they were baptized into the body of Christ, and the body of Christ, the church, began on that day. And they were baptized into the body of Christ. And then, second thing happened, in the same hour, the Holy Spirit took control of their lives, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And how do we know it? Why, Peter, who was shy and timid and denied the Lord Jesus at his trial, got up, boldly, spoke for Christ. In the same hour, they were both baptized by the Spirit into Christ and into the body of Christ, and in the same hour, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, somebody will say, well, how do you know that the baptism did not begin until the day of Pentecost? Well, I know it for many reasons, but I'll mention just two. First of all, Ephesians chapter 1, we know that the church did not begin until the day of Pentecost. How do you know that? Because Ephesians, for many reasons, well, one of them is this, that uh, Ephesians 1 tells us that Jesus, God's power raised Jesus, second, exalted him, third, put all things under his feet, and fourth, made him, gave him to be the head of the church, which is his body. The head of the church, which is... When was Jesus made the head of the church? After he was raised, after he ascended, and after he sat down in God's right hand. Then he was made the head of the church. Now, you can't have a body without a head. Is that correct? You can't have a body without... See, the people who say the churches in the Old Testament have got a body without a head. I call that Ichabod Crane theology without being facetious. But you can't have a body without a head. That is a living body. When did the head become the head? When was Jesus made the head? After his resurrection and his ascension and his exaltation. Then God gave him to be the head of the church. Then, on the day of Pentecost, he became the head. The same time that Jesus became the head, all believers were brought into the body. How were they brought into the body? By the what? How were they brought into the body? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that's why John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but one's coming who will, future, put you, future, will baptize you with the Spirit. That's why Jesus said in Acts 1, wait here, wait here, until you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, put in the future. On the day of Pentecost, they were all baptized. Jesus was made the head of the church. The church was born, the body of Christ, and all believers were united to the body of Christ in that hour. And that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, that church is not complete. When you were saved, you were another member added to the body. A finger, a hand, nose, heart, whatever it may be. See? You were added to that body. When that body is complete, when the Lord Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, has baptized into that body, that last member, and the body is complete, then Jesus Christ is going to come and take that body to be with himself. See? The rapture, the body be complete. And then God is going to deal, deal in a similar way for those who remain. That's the body of Christ. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that 
means by which I am brought into the body of Christ. Now, the person says, well, what about water baptism? Well, water baptism is a valid ordinance, and I should be baptized. As F.F. Bruce says, the New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized believer. When they were saved, they were baptized physically. Water. Water baptism is an outward profession of of that ex inward experience of grace. I happen to believe that water baptism is a symbol of that union of, into the body of Christ by which I'm brought into the body of Christ. And, uh, and a Christian ought to be baptized. See, water baptism is a valid ordinance. So there are two baptisms. Bapti matter of fact, I've got a sermon on seven baptisms. Seven baptisms. Baptism of John, baptism of fire, so on down the line. But here, too, one of them is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which brings me into the body of Christ, composed of all true believers. And secondly, water baptism, which is God, or in ordinance instituted by Jesus, by which I am identified with a local assembly of believers. And ought to, ought to experience what? If I don't experience the first, I won't go to heaven. I should experience the second as a, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So that's the inner experience. Now, last, the outward manifestation. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. The outward manifestation. The sensible phenomena were the uh, two things, the wind and the, and the tongues of fire. Secondly, the inner experience, chapter 2, verse 4, was the filling with the Spirit. Two things, baptized, chapter 1, 5, filled with the Spirit, 2-4. Third, the outer manifestation. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, endued with miraculous power, here they were endued with the miraculous power speaking in tongues, which obviously were foreign languages. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these we're speaking with other tongues. Are not all these men Galilean? How hear we every man in our own foreign language, our own tongue, when we are born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and so on down the line. So the tongues in Acts chapter 2 is obviously, were obviously foreign languages, not unknown tongues. Know that word unknown in First Corinthians chapter 14 is in italics, which means it's not in the original text, simply tongues. Here, obviously, it was foreign languages, foreign languages. Here was a man that, uh, here was Peter, who spoke uh, Aramaic, let's say. Uh, he spoke Aramaic and spoke Greek, Greek and Aramaic, perhaps some Hebrew. Here was Peter, got up, and all of a sudden, he spoke in... Uh, the language of one of the provinces in Asia. Let's say he spoke in Chinese. It would be as though uh, we would have, a, uh, you would have a hundred men here. And some of us knew Russian, nothing more. A Russian and Greek. Some of us were Chinese, and we knew Chinese and Greek. Some of us were from Afghanistan, and we knew Afghanistan and Greek. Some of us were French, and we knew French and Greek. Some of us were from Germany, and we knew German and Greek. That's all. Both at the same time, 
five men of us got up. One of us knows Greek and Aramaic. Another one knows Greek and Aramaic. All five know Greek and Aramaic. But suddenly, all five of us begin to speak. One speaks in Russian fluently. Fluently in Russian. Never studied it. Never saw a Russian textbook. But I begin to speak fluently in Russian. And there are 10, 12 Russians out there in the audience. And they say, how does that man do that? That's a miracle. Exactly. Exactly. That's a miracle. The second man begins to speak in fluent Chinese. And the 10 or 12 Chinese men out in the audience say, my, that man's not Chinese. He never studied it. We know him. He never studied it. How does he speak with it? That's a miracle. Right. That's a miracle. Here's the third man. He speaks fluently all of a sudden Afghanistan. He has a hard time pronouncing the word, <laughs> let alone speaking it. And he speaks fluent Afghanese or whatever it is. He speaks fluently. And there are 15 Afghanistans in the audience. And they say, we know that man. All he knows is Aramaic Greek, and he has a hard time with that. How is he doing this? That's the miracle. Exactly right. Now, that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, here were Jews at the Feast of Pentecost from all over the world. They're described all over the Mediterranean world. And uh, from Asia Minor, from Greece, from Rome, from Iran today, Persia, from northern Africa. And these 12 apostles and probably some of the others got up. One of them spoke in a fluent dialect of which he did not have any command. Another man got up and spoke in a fluent dialect. And all of these Jews who knew their Old Testament, now you listening? All these Jews from all over the world who had these, who masters of these different dialects and knew their Old Testament knew that the gift of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was manifested visibly, audibly, by the gift of prophecy, speaking. They knew that. They had read the Old Testament. They knew that God authenticated his prophets in the Old Testament by miracles. So they said, here are these men speaking a language that we can understand very fluently. And they're ignorant Galileans. They never studied Chinese. But they're speaking fluent Chinese. They never looked at a Russian grammar, never saw a Russian newspaper, know nothing of Russian, can't give one Russian word, yet suddenly they're speaking fluent Russian. Here's another man. He never saw an Afghanistan grammar book, yet he's speaking fluent Afghanistan language. How do we, this must be God. God has given them this a miracle, exactly. Foreign languages, in Acts chapter 2, uh, the tongues in Acts chapter 2 were foreign languages. They were given. Now, are you all listening to this? They were given to them not to evangelize. Every once in a while I read that they were given the gift of tongues so they could evangelize. Not so, because all the speakers and all the audience were bilingual. They had their own language plus Greek. And Peter could have easily spoken in Greek if he simply wanted to evangelize. They were the apostles' credentials. 
These speaking in foreign languages authenticated what the apostles were saying. And what they said was they praised God for giving to them his son, Jesus Christ. And it was a, a, just like Jesus raising a dead man, authenticated. Just like Jesus opening the ear of a deaf man, authenticated them. Credentials. Just as Jesus feeding the 5,000 a miracle, authenticating Jesus to his audience. So speaking in foreign languages, authenticated those speakers to the audience that God was miraculously using them and therefore what they said, the gospel, was true. Foreign speaking in foreign languages was an authentication of the message and the messenger. And that, of course, is what a miracle is. A miracle is an event in the physical world intended to authenticate a message or a messenger. Now, the question arises, which we are not going to solve, are the tongues of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 also foreign languages, or were they ecstatic speech in unknown tongues? Now, I'm not going to raise the question, and I'm not going to answer the question. But it's obvious that the tongues in Acts chapter 2 were foreign languages, and they were intended to authenticate the message or the messenger. They were given by them, and of course they were all attracted by that. All right, well now we're grateful that we got through verse 36, just as we intended. See? We'll just have to take up at that point. Now.